All right, thank, thank you um, very much for that introduction and also um, can I just uh, congratulate Janison for um, the conference. It looks very exciting, the, the two days, and um, I know we're going to have a lot of very interesting discussion that will continue on from last night. Um, what I'm interested, uh, Wayne asked me to try to do some sort of coverage of what we're doing with Janison and then the bigger picture about maybe where the world's going and, and so I've taken a fair bit of licence, Wayne, and I'll, I'll try to do that. M- my context is a university context, but many of the lessons we've learned about e-learning actually translate across every one of the education sectors. Um, higher ed generally, schools and so on. All we've got to do is think about what are the individual slightly different issues in each of those contexts. So I'll try to address the higher ed context generally, uh, but, it, but specifically universities, and, and then at the end I'll just try to spread that out a little or, or generalise that a little more. So uh, I'm the Dean of a Faculty of Education at the University of Wollongong. Let me just set the context for the University of Wollongong. Uh, we, we do have sunshine there, you can see from the picture. Um, University has a long history of, of technology use in learning um, overall across the university and specifically in my faculty. So we, we've had a long background. The Faculty of Education in particular has a strong research capability and background in ICTs in learning. Been in it for a long time from the late 80s uh, and so on and I'll, I'll just come to some of that. We offer a, a fairly large range of programs in teacher preparation, uh, Bachelor of Educations, Masters and doctoral programs. Um, there is a, we have approximately 1,500 students in our overall program, um, and they they cover that full range. And um, we have about 90 courses that we're actually running at present. Sorry, 90 subjects, plus a range of other aspects of of courses that I'll, I'll talk about as well. Just to add to that context, within my faculty I've, I've got a large lab uh, and uh, a whole series of researchers that work, have been working collaboratively in e-learning and in educational learning for a long time. So they always want me to present the, the picture of many of the awards they've received, and so I've done that. Um, but I just wanted to show you a range of products that uh, have come out of that research group and are part of the faculty experience and um, history. And m- many of you as teachers probably have come across products like Investigating Lokaluka and Exploring the Nardu and Stage Truck. And in, um, we've also, that team has also done a lot of work across a range of online learning environments as commercial products as well. In terms of the university context, um, university-wide learning management system is VISTA, good decision, a month before uh, the Blackboard announcement. And so now the university itself has to think about what it's going to do. It's a conservative approach and and that's understandable in a big institution. Um, the, The people that run our technology say, we want to be successful we don't want to run with uh, products that are new, too hard for us. What happens if something goes wrong? We'll be to blame. And so a very conservative attitude. And that's pretty common across universities generally. They're extremely conservative institutions. 
Um, Faculty of Education, however, but we should be pushing the boundaries. We should be exploring. And so we are, and so we've always been trying to use next generation tools. So uh, we chose Janison Toolbox nearly three years ago now, about two and a half, for all of our graduate program, our undergraduate program because it comes within the, the, um, the university structure generally or, or control, we use whatever the university chooses. But for our graduate program then, we can use uh, whatever we choose. Uh, and we've been working closely with Janison for quite some time. We're fairly modest compared with some of you. 2,000 users at the graduate level approximately. Um, now, that, now they're really 2,000 instances of students. So if, if a student's doing four subjects, they will count four times within our, our um, total list here. Over 90 individual active subjects and other communities of lear- community of learner sites. We, we're found, finding Janison has got an incredible um, niche, we think, in that area. As a faculty of education, we don't only teach, we've got relationships of all sorts, and the tool allows us to, to develop that. Um, why Janison? Um, well, we think they've got the pedagogical, pedagogical tools that are not available in, in other learning management tools. That is, they've got tools that we can't use, uh, we haven't been able to find in other tools. Other tools we think are catching up, but you'll see today, over the next couple of days, Janison's going to talk about, and I think particularly Wayne, some wonderful new tools that really uh, keep putting them ahead, we think. Well, the other important thing is Janison is really responsive to our needs. That is, they, they respond. If we've got an issue, a particular issue we want to talk to them about, well, you, you can be on the phone with Wayne and his team and in a month they'll come up with an idea to try to solve your problem. Which um, try that with Vista or Blackboard, uh, and and it's usually uh, six layers of button pushing to get down to the right menu, and then you never really get to anybody. Um, we we really like the idea of external professional hosting. Uh, that really eliminates any technical issues we've got in our university. So uh, we host we don't host our websites. Um, it's hosted by Janison through their professional hosting services and so we eliminate any problems within our institution where maybe the, the professional level of management is not to the level of external businesses. And universities tend to suffer from that a little sometimes. We wax and wane with our expertise and, and that's something that we thought was attractive. We think that's a low risk for us. Um, the other, the other important part about that is that we can be pretty much independent. Um, it can be linked to our systems, our university system, so it can pull down student number, information and staff number, but it can also be independent. So if the university is down and they can't get through that way, they can go directly to the sites. We, some examples of some of the interesting environments we think that have been constructed that have a particular application and, and Janison allows us to implement that are these sorts of environments. For example, this, this environment here, you can see this is, the, this is a graduate diploma in education, a one-year intensive program for teacher preparation. These people are out in schools a lot 
They do a lot of their methods teaching out in schools. So they're not on campus a great deal of the time that they're studying. So we needed some mechanism to support them through that process, but also to support them in the range of, pro of subjects we were offering. So this particular site is a very, very social site. It's probably our most successful site. It's a one-stop shop for all of these students. We even run a lot of the universities infrastructure, admin infrastructure out of this. So in other words they go in here and then they can go off to their university souls mail and all sorts of other facilities. So we have found that's a, a tremendous tool for us. So here you can see the director of the program at last finished the program and looking a bit relaxed, having coffee and then a final personal message from her to all the students. The day after this occurred, we actually got, uh, we have something like 100 DipEd students from Canada. The Ontario Institute of Teachers sent us a new set of requirements about what those students have to do when they get back to Canada so we could immediately put that up on our website and we knew because of the enormous participation rate the students would be there. Here's some of the, the social aspect of that program as well. You can see it, it, um, students can also add content to that as part of the program. Another tool that we're using extensively that we think is really great is this, the best site, uh, Beginning and Establishing Successful Teachers. That's a program where we want to reach out to our graduates and say, well, we supported you through your program, but now you're early teachers, we need to support, continue to support you, we need you to be continue to link, to be linked to other peers so you can discuss ideas and we also have a peer support program within that for our undergraduate students as they're out on prac, some of our graduates already out there teaching then support those students. That's a, that's a very exciting program showing an enormous uh, success we think at this stage. A lot of research going on about it. So you can see well, there are a lot of different ways in which the tool can be used. The other important aspect of it we think is this whole idea of communities of learners. Uh, so all of our doctoral students have the opportunity to be linked in and be able to discuss their ideas in a variety of ways, know what's happening in the overall program. And of course the new communication tools that we've been playing with for a little while now and um, many, uh, Wayne suited to a number of different places, institutions and, and are going to be demonstrated over the next two or a few days, really add another layer of communication that, that is very exciting for us. We're really now just trying to analyse that as a, a design team and say, well, what new affordances does that give? How do we build these tools into successes with tasks, uh, student successes? How do we add value with the communication within our subjects and so on? And, and we think they're going to be very exciting tools for us to do that. And it's helping us to solve one of the big downsides of online learning that I'll come back to in a minute. So what do our staff think? Um, because they're the ones that are at the front line. They're the ones that actually got to do it. Uh, these are the sorts of comments they, they give back to us. Um, they, they really love the idea of editing directly on the website with a nice, simple editor that, that where the interface is pretty intuitive. They really love the toolbox aspect of that. Oh, I want to put this here, so let me go to the toolbox and see what's there. The resources are so easy to add compared with other tools. 
See, many of these people are migrating from WebCT, so um, you can understand how excited they are about that. But they also, some of them are migrating or have used other learning management tools that are, that are quite complex and sophisticated. But generally, this, these are the ideas that they're telling us about. Um, great deal of excitement about the pedagogical tools. Because we're a faculty of education, new ways to implement learning, new ways to get students to interact with each other and with us are always very exciting for us. Uh, so we've, get, we got, we've got enormous buy-in from our faculty. Um, high level of adoption. They, don't, they, don't, they have a choice. They can go to Vista or they can go to Jenison or they don't actually have to have online learning environments if they don't want to. Uh, but that choice they make to use Janison. Um, we support them technically and with design. And so two, we've got two, I've got two of my colleagues here and they'll be presenting Friday some ideas about how they're implementing the new communication tools and some other ideas we've been playing with as well. Um, and the staff are committed to the new ideas of, in learning, as I said. So um, there's pretty much a great deal of excitement about the whole process. And, of course, Janison support so many new pedagogical ideas and what Wayne is going to present in the next few days is the next layer they're up to. The exciting thing is that there are more things on the drawing board down the line um, and, and uh, I think some of those are even more exciting. Uh, what do students think? And students are always our best judge. An enormous level of engagement we're getting. The, the issue about online learning with high dropout rates and the, a poor perception of the relationship between the student and the instructor, uh, we're just not getting that now with these sorts of tools. Um, so for example, we would get 650 uh, sessions per day, individual students logging on per day. Um, the DIP-Ed is probably our most successful program in that regard because they want to keep up with what's happening. If they're out in schools, they want to keep communicating with where the world's up to in terms of their program and what's being offered for them. High, enormously high level of participation in the chat sessions and discussion tools. Why? Because the tools allow it. They are, they are so easy to use, we think, and the students tell us that, and we are, as designers, are getting much better at design. We're much better at incorporating those interactions into part of the experience, the learning experience, either as part of an assessment process or as part of a necessary process where they've got to come up with some ideas that they eventually uh, express. And, and peer discussion, uh, chat about specific issues, forums about specific issues with the if we design them well, allow us to have that high interaction and drag those ideas forward with our students. Um, we also have design subjects in our masters and we're actually getting our students to design in Janison and uh, they're having a ball with that. Um, so they can easily construct their, their artefact that they're constructing which might be a web design or a communication design or an interaction of some sort. They can easily construct, um, they can, and within their our own subjects, students can participate and easily construct elements like glossaries, um, their own sites, files that they load up to share with other people and so on. So that, that part of the interaction we find is pretty exciting. Um, very low dropout rates in our programs generally. 
Um, if, I, if I look at the overall dropout rate from my whole faculty, it's about 12% undergraduate and graduate. At the graduate level, it's only about um, 5 or 6%. And all of our graduate programs are currently online. So w this tool, we think, is helping us enormously with keeping that process going. Uh, and the, the students also tell us, because many of them have used at the deep ed level, for example, they come from other institutions, they've used other learning management tools, and, and um, they give us very positive feedback. Easy to use, more robust, chat faster on dial-up lines, uh, never unavailable. And that's an important issue for us. We don't get messages from, IT, from our central admin saying, um, no, uh, the IT is going to be down Saturday, uh, we're, we're upgrading a server or something's happening and we might be teaching in Hong Kong that weekend or there might be a big, uh, one of our Hong Kong subjects, there might be a presentation going on and so on. Um, we, when it's externally hosted and the robustness of this tool, we really don't have any downtime. Um, I think over the two and a half years we've, we were talking in the plane on the way up with my team, I think we've had about two hours overall over two and a half years and part of that, most of that was our institution's fault in that um, initially we had students signing through our institution and then off to Jamison. So that's, that's a really exciting component of this because if you're teaching internationally and we offer our programs Worldwide, we've got cohorts in Hong Kong and in the US, and um, working towards working in Dubai at present as well. So we can't. It's a it's a global world we're teaching in, and we can't have times where Saturday or Sunday um, the, the system's down because in Dubai, Saturday and Sunday aren't the weekend. Okay, let me now just take that, that's, that's our context, that's where I'm coming from. Let me now just try to come back to the big picture and where I think we've come from and where we're going to and, and the, I, the concept that we are still making some of the same mistakes but I think we're moving uh, on um, in a much, into an environment where success is really uh, starting to show and, and we need to understand where those successes are. We, um, and that's important. Initial hype, everybody knew e-learning in the 90s was going to take over the world. We all knew that. Many of us were on that bandwagon. Um, the bubble burst in the mid-90s and, and the, all the research showed us this is why it burst. Very poor teaching. Most of the online learning at that point were vertical books. You took your content and you shoved it up on on some sort of uh, browser and that was it. We were online learners now. Um, and to this day still, some of our institutes, some of the people in my institute, especially the engineers, think that that's still the way you learn. But we're working hard on them and there's some success, I think. Students need for contact. No, we didn't understand that at that stage and they, they dropped out in their droves, didn't they? Poor tools, really. Um, the tools that we were using at that point were very much content-driven and content expression tools. And, of course, very high dropout rates on these programs. Everybody tried it. Uh, worst possible marketing strategy, you try something and it fails and, and it's very hard to get back from that. The business models weren't realistic. Um, 
Um, shake out of a shake, the shakeout of the market showed that. For example, Virtual Temple University, that really never enrolled a student. It cost them about a million dollars to set that whole institution up in the US just at the point where the bubble burst. Never enrolled a student. They just wrote it off. Columbia University, um, they, they started off pretty well, a lot of hype, world leader, and then the students disappeared. New York U closed up. And that was in the mid-90s. Even last year, EUK, £160 million or something built on that. Universities in Australia were very worried about it. In the last 10 to 12 years, Australian universities have stolen the Asian market from the UK and much of the US. Here, we thought, was UK's answer. Enormous investment, high-quality learning environments, Best academics from around the UK were going to be presenting and so on. Fizzled, closed down. 600 students they had enrolled instead of the 60,000 they thought they were going to get. Um, and they made a political decision to close it down. It's hard. The analysis about why it closed down is not out yet. I've talked to one friend who actually was employed by them and uh, he's still pretty bitter, so you can't... You've got to try and cut through that and work out what the real answers are, were. But it appears as if the point about, some of the points I'm going to make here about what we should be doing and what success, how successes are being realised were actually um, being implemented. That is the reverse. So a lot of high-flying academics were employed, but they had no experience in e-learning, they hadn't read the research, they, didn't, they weren't good designers, and so... The whole point about um, design, which we now know about, we now know how, how important it is to get those learning environments right, um, it, just, it just wasn't there. Um, I think their business model also was extremely faulty, but it will see more information about that. They're keeping it pretty quiet at present because it's a political hot potato. So what I'm saying is people have now developed those clear models we know how they should be working. We're still experimenting with them, but we're still seeing successes. But uh, there are still circumstances where the hype, we get carried away with the hype and major, major errors occur. I think there's still a lot of issues to resolve, but there's more and more research out there, really good research, telling us how to do it and tell, giving us good ideas about how the students respond, what sort of outcomes we might be looking for and the best way to think about the design in different contexts and with different learners. And the, the, one of the problems with that research is it's not really coming back very quickly into guidelines for designers and for instructors, but we'll see it. The sorts of models um, that, that have been implemented for virtual universities have been these sorts of models. Prestigious virtual universities like Phoenix, 170,000 graduates they've had that are online only. Now, that's, it's not only... Everybody thinks it's only an online university. It isn't. It was a, a university designed for adult learners, for workers who wanted to come in after working in the day um, and um, develop some expertise. But its major component is online. 170,000 graduates. Um, it's hard to un know what those qualifications, how those qualifications are valued. Um, it's certainly not one of the prestigious universities in the world. 
prestigious and traditional and virtual university combinations are starting to evolve. My MIT, um, 70,000 students in Latin America they claim to have, big collaboration in Singapore for online learning. They seem to be starting to, they seem to have understood the issues and are, are getting parts of it right, although I've seen some of their designs and they're not great. But prestigious university, get a degree from MIT, pretty impressive. Uh, professional virtual university groups, collaborations. EUK was a national collaboration funded by the federal government. Um, CVU is the Canadian Virtual University, a consortium of about 15 Canadian universities that collaboratively put up online learning environments. Now, they, they've got a bit of a reasonably successful model because they've got a lot of research behind it. There's a lot of really good research on online learning happening in Canada and that's being fed in. So we might see those sorts of successes occurring. Then, then the other model that's being used is best of breed virtual universities. So Universitas 21, when it was announced, was best of breed. We'll take the five or six best universities in the world and we'll have collaborative courses and you'll really have a top quality program. Not going very well, you uh, at Universitas 21. Um, concept's a good idea, um, but again, one of their problems was that they didn't think about the design very well. And then we're going to see niche universities. Universities are going to come up and, and be specific areas for online learning, medical universities uh, and so on. And, and we're going to, that's, that's already happening across the training and vocational education sector very well. You guys have been into that for a long time, but universities haven't. Um, in, in terms of those institutions, what sort of modes of virtuality have we, are they offering? So completely online is um, something that's really struggled, but it's there now and we know it's happening and there are, there are successes coming forward. Blended learning, that is online and face-to-face. -face. I hate that word. Um, I think about my son being blender and putting stuff in, but never mind, it's starting to catch on. Um, learner support and resources only type of um, online learning. Most of our undergraduate programs have got that sort of support with their, um, with their teaching programs. The assumptions we make we constant, that have been made and we continue to make and we've got to keep examining are these. Build it and they will come. And it hasn't happened. We've seen all of those failures. It's, maybe it's starting to happen because we're getting the other bits right. Um, cheaper and, and rigor translate, it doesn't. If you're a really good face-to-face -face academic, you're not necessarily a good online designer. You can be, you should be, but you're not necessarily. So the rigor of really good quality uh, teaching doesn't necessarily translate, especially in the early stages where designers are just trying to get something going. Um, and of course it's not cheaper. You, there's a lot of research now about how act, what sort of work teachers and, and instructors and academics have to do to keep good online um, learning going. And we know you've, you've really got to commit yourself to a lot of time. So the, there's not a, the, the cost might be there in scale, but it's not showing up very well. Any academic can do it or any instructor can do it. Doesn't work. We know that's not right. 
Uh, if they can design quality learning, we can, well, there's a chance they can do it. If they can't, well, they probably will never be able to do it. So we can't just say, right, let's take this whole university to a virtual university without taking a, a great deal of time to think about the instructors you're going to use. It's valid across all cultures. It's not. In China, if you've got a degree with more than 25% online learning, doesn't count. Not accepted anywhere. Uh, so, so we've got also this whole issue of um, validity and rigour. Right? It's not really rigorous enough. Where did that come from? Why are countries making those sorts of decisions? In the United Arab Emirates, and Wollongong's got a campus in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, no online learning. Don't trust it, uh, and so on. So it, online learning, we, the, the original hype about we can teach the world, it's not there because the cult, there's all sorts of cultural barriers still that we, ha- we can't address properly. If we're going to break those barriers down, you've got to convince, we've got to convince those governments that the rigour is there. This is quality learning and, and it's, if we're going to give them an award from our institution or our school or our vet sector institution, well, there's quality and we can show there's quality. We're still getting the big sell, uh, even from best of breed institutions. Universitas 21 Global's just launched a big program in China. I don't know whether they know about the 25% bit, but anyway, they're saying finish your study without leaving your work posts. Um, it's a, it's a nice marketing idea. It doesn't work. We know that. Uh, anybody who's a manager knows that um, if, if somebody's learning at work, they're not really, it's, it's not really going to work. There's all sorts of interruptions and um, people really don't tend to learn in that context unless you can separate them out. Um, so we're still, th- this is doing everybody a disservice. Um, at, but it's out there. And it's a marketing ploy that people are using. So we've, we've got to watch out about how that's going to work and what damage those sorts of things are going to do. The assumptions that we were all making in the 90s about learners were the, the learners that are going to come are learners with disabilities because they can't come to face-to-face from remote locations. Um, those sorts of learners will see value and from remote locations internationally people who can't get access to their institutions or haven't got institutions that are accessible. International students will take up um, the, the, um, the whole e-learning agenda because they, they don't have to pay to come to your country. Time-poor learners will be a strong market. Uh, learners won't change the system. That is, we can build something and then we can keep it for 10 years because there won't be any the learners won't really need to think about it anymore. Or we don't need to think about it anymore. So, what's happening then with the learners for online learning? Well, the research is starting to show that, in fact, all of our assumptions about that weren't right. That is, they're completely mixed. Um, Many of our students live in Wollongong but don't want to come in, and so they're doing a lot of stuff online. Um, And in the UK, that's all of the research has been showing that. The students are mixed. They want to try the idea or they want to learn that it's convenient for them, um, but they're not necessarily living a long way away. They're not necessarily time poor. Uh, It's really difficult to profile them. No low penetration across borders. That is, 
the international students aren't taking it up uh, in large numbers. They w international students want to have that cultural experience as well. It's, it seems to be apparent. And the IDP report last year um, showed us that. Um, so, and learners are changing the system as they go. That is, um, we might build something that we think works and then we've got to keep thinking about it about what we might do. I'll give you a specific example that's a problem for me for next year. We've got a number of undergraduate uh, subjects that are, say, 200, 250,000, and the model of presentation uh, is two lectures and a tutorial or, or a lecture and two tutorials. Well, for the first three to four weeks, we get 220 to 250 students. In week 12, we get 30, 40. Uh, all of those subjects have online components. As soon as we supplied the online components where they could interact with each other, they could get the downloaded video lectures, they could get the content of the course, they found other ways to think about learning. Now, everybody cried, well, they're all going to fail, they're not coming up, they're not listening to me because I'm telling them the good stuff and so on. didn't happen. All of, our, all of our assessment across the whole institution where it was happening turned out to be just the same as the previous year and the previous year, the average values and so on. So um, the, the students have changed our system. We've got to respond to that. We've got to say, well, what does that mean now for us? How, do, how are we going to manage that? Um, does it mean we only have mass lectures for the first three weeks to get everybody up and going and then everything else is online and we maybe bring them back to the end and the real action takes place in the tutorials and online? Is that what the preference is? Or do those 30 or 40 people that come every week really need that face-to-face -face and how do we address that? So that's a management and cost problem, but those students are changing the system. They're changing. Of course, we didn't even anticipate that. We've got to change the way we think about learning and the online environments will do exactly the same for us. What's driving the trend? Well, the, you all will know because of the institutions you come from that the demand's going. Uh, but it's still conservative. Uh, business models are developing. So we, we're past the hype, most of us, uh, and we're more conservative with the way we think about it. Um, and um, th th I think there's some movement forward. There are new affordances now that mean a lot of the shortcomings of the early, of the early bubble burst, like lack of, of student um, linking up with the program, lack, lack of student participation, lack of connection, are starting to go. And Wayne's going to demonstrate some wonderful tools that really break through all of that so you can have all your students linked in all sorts of ways, including video and whiteboards and so on. So we're breaking through some of the original barriers that meant that people weren't coming. Um, and, and there's also more international issues that are going to affect us. For universities in particular, the, the um, risk of travel, the concerns about terrorism and so on are going to have an influence on international student movement. Uh, we can see it already and so institutions have to try to respond to that. This might be one way. The, uh, there's some barriers there, of course, about countries accepting or not accepting those qualifications. Who is succeeding then? Not the UK's e-universities. Same mistakes that everybody was making in the 90s. It appears, but again, it's a bit prejudging them. We don't really know. Um, 
the research is showing in the in the um, in Pollux research in the UK was showing that virtual unis work in theory but not in practice. And and he was looking at a traditional full model and unfortunately his research didn't really get down and examine the detail underneath about instructors. But that that's what is coming through overall. Where affordances are being implemented then, success follows. That is where we worry about the learners and where we use the technology to overcome those initial findings about learner interaction, well, it's starting to work. Some of US models are working. For example, Phoenix is working, 170K online graduates. They say it's working and it looks like it is and they certainly invest a lot of money in their design process. So these are the factors for success that are coming out of the research. The pedagogy is crucial. doesn't matter how good your tools are. If you've got vertical books, you might as well give it away. You're not, you're not going to be successful unless students are forced to actually do the course. Um, and the tools to implement those pedagogies are really important, those different learning strategies. If you can implement different learning strategies, well, you're going to, their success, you're going to have success. And Janison tools, we think, are, have got that pretty covered, pretty much covered. Administrative um, investment and support is crucial. That is, you've got to have your infrastructure right, but you've also got to support the people actually doing the work in terms of infrastructure and administration, and you've got to have strong marketing. And the marketing's really suffering a lot from the sort of marketing advertisement we saw for a Universitas 21 in China, and it's also still suffering from the bubble in that a lot of cultures don't accept online learning as a qualification. Well, what does success look like generally? Um, well, um, it, if it's a quality implementation, that's a, a component. If, it's, uh, if there's effective initial social interaction and you draw your learners in, uh, it's, that's a successful success factor. If the learner interactions that are, are integral to the experience, it's, it's a success factor. And if you've got strong success, instructor support, it's a success factor. Now, how do we know that? We implemented in our research team a large project three years ago, Australian University Teaching Committee uh, project, um, and that project examined online learning environments across the country. We asked people to submit those to us, and we tried to, we looked at how they were implemented, we analyzed, and we looked at the research about those learning environments, and we used a tool that we developed to try to analyze them in terms of quality learning. And from that, from that analysis, we then thought about, well, how have these, these uh, subjects been so successful? Um, we, um, we, we, from that, it was very clear that the pedagogy was the crucial key, not the technology they were using, because they were using all sorts of uh, technology. From that, all, that project also, we, we started to understand that there are a whole lot of designs, learning designs, we were calling them, or learning strategies, that people have really tested and worked well but no, hardly anybody knew about, only their friends or that institution or if you'd been to a conference to see about, see them. So we had the opportunity then to develop a website where we could represent all those good designs and try to distill them out as generic designs. Um, um, we also 
tried to think about what tools do you need? Could you build some simple tools to construct some of these designs and, and to implement them? Um, and we also started to think about what elements of these designs would be reusable. How, how could people take these designs and implement them in their own context and share them with other instructors so that they didn't have to keep reinventing the wheel? Um, and and we, as part of this, we, we realised that you really did need a learning management system that offered um, these sorts of abilities, these attributes, but also encouraged good pedagogy as part of the process. And Shirley Agostino is here, has written some stuff about that. So this project then um, was um, funded by the Australian University Teaching Committee. Um, the aim was to assist university teachers to create high quality learning and flexible learning experiences. The process that we went through I've just described um, and, and is available on a lot of our publications and I'm happy to give this presentation out. Um, then we evaluated, as I said, all of these learning designs um, and then we generated a website that's got a series of examples or exemplars, a series of genetic guides, generic, genetic learning designs and then some tools. Uh, we represented the designs in this sort of way. We used some research uh, that a group in Western Australia had done, Ron Oliver and Jan Harrington, about, uh, who analysed uh, a couple of hundred online learning designs and then uh, tried to think about what components were there. And so we said, well, we think most online learning designs consist of a set of tasks, structured tasks that the instructor's given, um, a set of resources that the learners are going to draw on and then a set of supports that the learners are going to, uh, that are going to support the learners. So we represented all of these designs with that sort of formalism, visual formalism. And it's a, it's a pretty neat way to just visually see what the learning design's about. And as a designer, it also helps you think about, well, how do, how do these tasks fit in with what I'm trying to do? Will, will they work for me or in this content area and this design I'm trying to think about? Then have, can I put all these supports together and have I got these resources? Where am I going to find them? So we, we then took all of these learning designs and represented them as a learning sequence, uh, of learning design, as, as a learning design as a sequence. Uh, each of the designers identified all of this detail for us and we, we interviewed all the designers, looked at the research about their design and then were able to express the whole of their design within our website, not only in this visual formalism but also with tips, guidelines, what, what you re, what's the essential component of this design? What are add-ons that you might like to implement in your second attempt at it? Um, what, what are the things you've got to watch out for? What are the details about supporting learners? So in other words, there's, there are multiple layers of support if you want to implement these designs. Here's, here's the website. I'll just, just give you a very quick um, look at it because I think I've, I'm starting to go over time a little... We'll just increase the size of the text a bit so there's a chance you can see it. All right, so this is the, the overall design. So in here we had 30 or so exemplars. Then we distilled um, five uh, different guides, that is generic um, versions of the exemplars. And then 
we found some wonderful tools for constructing designs, so we, we, construct, we put those into the project as well. If I just look at the exemplars, you can, you can look, at, um, how, look at them in terms of their focus. So these are collaborative designs, that's the focus on them. These ones are uh, concept or procedural development designs. These ones are problem-based learning focus. Um, and so on. There's a, role, there's a case study focus and a role play focus. So these designs are all available free for anybody to use. So if you take one of them, for example, this was produced by Joe Luca in uh, Western Australia um, for a graduate subject he was teaching. So I can just look down here and see what Joe's comments are about uh, his summary of how this works. Here's a summary of the, or a critique of it from the people who analysed this subject and said, well, we think this is a good design and this is why and this is how we think it produces high-quality learning. And then there's some rationale about why we included it in the site and then some reference to some work that research that Joe's done. Uh, we can look at Joe's design team. We can now look at Joe, in effect, and how he thinks he's designed it. So here's, here's part of the formalism here, broken down into text, and then I can jump to the actual visual representation of it. So this is the way Joe thinks his design works, and so you can see the whole thing on one page. Um, here's, here's the sequence uh, here. Uh, then he's described the tasks and details about the tasks, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, and so on. So this, this is a very valuable site, we think, uh, and it's been used extensively by people. And um, the nice thing about it was it allowed us to try to conceptualise, tr try to take out, to look at a whole lot of really good online learning and try to think about, well, what was making it good? And how could you describe to other people how to implement it? The website is um, shown there on the slide and um, it's, it's a very extensive site with an enormous amount of content and detail, but the good, nice thing about it is we've designed it so you can, you can go at the top level and look at an overall design. If you want to implement it, well, you can keep going down multiple levels to look at the level of detail you want, right down to the way in which support might be implemented. Um, so, so we think one of the directions online learning might be going, and, and it actually is going, is this whole idea of where are the good designs that we can implement that people have been really successful with and how do you get access to them? So that we think that project's been a good start for us anyway. At, added to the end of that is this whole idea of reusability as a new technology. So you've got the whole learning objects debate that is, is going ahead rapidly, not that we know too much about them uh, and how to use them, but nevertheless, there's been big investment in Australia, as we know, in repositories and learning object, uh, the whole learning object debate. The whole idea of standards we have to keep in mind as part of this, and, and one of the most exciting new developments, we think, is the IMS LD standard. Um, that is, what happened with that process is the Open University of the Netherlands developed a way of describing learning through a language called the Educational Modelling Language. Now, that's really, it was hard to get access to because you needed to be a programmer to use it, but it was a, a modelling language that describes every sort of learner interaction and learning strategy you could construct. 
because it was made up of elements that you could put together, supposedly. Now that's been integrated into IMS, so it's part of the standard. Uh, so this whole idea of trying to describe learning designs and then bringing them in as part of a standard or constructing your learning design and then laying it out with within this standard means the whole reusability issue might eventually get going for us and, and wonderful designs will be able to be shared. I'm just adding the MPEG-21 here because it's a new multimedia standard for content wrapping and um, that may be a big issue for all of us coming up. Um, we, we don't know where that's going to go yet. Um, I'll jump over some of these now and, and just try to get to the end. I think I'm nearly out of time. So the future on what is needed, I'm just trying to predict and I think you, as, I, as I work through this, you've got to try and think of your own context, universities I'm thinking about, but a lot of it is translatable. The future and what is needed, I really think, are the tools. Um, tools to take these are the ideas about online learning and implement them effectively uh, and with reusable aspects and with learning designs that we know work. Learning management systems that support good pedagogy and are easy for academics to use. You all know if you're, if you're a part of a, a design group where you've got to help other academics work or other instructors or other teachers work within this context, unless it, you can get them up and running quickly and they get success quickly, it's a long, hard road. Um, so you need nice, simple tools that give them rapid success. Reusable, reusable resources are going to be more and more important for us because we will be able to then be more rapid with our construction, reusable learning objects and so on that we can tweak for our own context and, and learning designs that we can tweak for our own, con uh, our own context. And of course, the standards that support this investment um, are there, need to be there. And, and we think, as, an as a faculty, we're running with Janison because we think they're covering all of these issues for us. Um, I, I might just jump ahead and look at a couple of two other futures that we're working on and we're doing, uh, we're doing some work with Wayne and his team about some of these ideas. Um, if, you think, if you start trying to think ahead about where the world's going and if, if learning objects actually gets pulled off as a concept and learning designs is successful as a concept, well, I think we're going, to have to, we're going to be starting to think about, well, what's going to happen in here with all of these resources? How do we then support people with that design process? Because there's not much support at present. So we're working on this idea of how you, work, how you think about design as design and what help they need at the points at which they, they think they need help. So we're, developed, we're working on this idea of a smart learning design framework um, and learning designs that can plug into that if, uh, and a, a learning management system that will be able to support that sort of, all of those sorts of ideas. We've got a little demonstrator working on that at present and we're doing some research on it, but it's, it's early days for us. And the next big idea I think that's important for us that um, we, we're all got to think about is that if we're successful, if, you, if we can pull all these ideas off about learning objects and learning designs and the standards and so on, what about us as individual learners? We should, we, if you think about how you learn at present, we constantly all use the, the internet extensively, but wouldn't it be great if, for example, you got a new camera and you said, 
okay, I want to be, I want to be a good photographer using this camera. I want to understand the camera, but I want to know how to use it as well, not just what it's got in the manual. Um, and I want to get up to this level. And you could go to a portal and say, I want to, I want to be a photographer. This is the level of expertise I want to get to. Help me. And then it would interrogate you and say, well, what sort of a learner do you think you are? Um, what, what sort of camera have you got and so on. And then as you start going through that and learning, it supports you when you want to. You might say, well, I got far enough and so it might finish you off or whatever. So in other words, I think there's an enormous set of issues and opportunities for online learning, for personal learning beyond all the institutional learning that almost all of us have been involved with. And all of these developments along the way are going to facilitate that, we think. So that's another future we've been thinking about. In summary, there is a place for virtual environments um, and we are starting to understand where it is. Um, uh, and and the, the big issues I've outlined about quality learning and, and capturing your learners. Uh, e-learning environments need to be well designed and of high quality to engage students effectively. Tools and resources are limited but they're coming to help instructors and learners to take control and implement their ideas. And the research, again, I've just emphasised, is very clear that the, the learning strategies are the key issues for us all to focus on. Um, and the, the last aspect is quality learning is supported by quality instructors. We're never going to get away from that. Um, no matter what the marketing people tell us. Okay, sorry if I went over time. Happy to answer any questions. Oh, right, okay, 15 minutes of questions. Right. All <laughs> oh, right, okay. Well, I'll answer some questions, but also there's another issue I think that is part of the future that I'd like to just uh, have a quick look at if I can. But I'm, um, I'm fine to answer some questions first. Um, thanks for that, Barry. I'm Phil Hum from Knox Grammar School. Uh, you mentioned um, that one of the failings early on was the student need for contact. And, and we've improved that area now. But I'm just wondering if you could be more specific on, on what that contact was. What, yeah. what was it that wasn't there that is perhaps there now through improved... Um, the tools, tools. we've got. Okay, well, I think it's got multiple levels. Um, uh, one level is uh, contact with the instructor. That is a way in which they can, they can communicate with the instructor effectively and feel as if the instructor is part of their learning environment. Many of the early tools we used, that much of the communication was via email as a separate, entirely separate issue. And um, so that, that's one layer. The next layer is communication with their peers. We, uh, we, we know that the social interaction with learning is a, is a crucial part of the learning process. So if you're an individual learner, um, your job's a little harder unless you've got the ability to actually communicate with other learners, try out ideas, think about ideas, express your ideas and then have other people discuss them. So the tool, that part of, of learning was pretty much missing from all of those early tools. The peer-to-peer -peer interaction in a way in which was visible to learners, to groups of learners but also whole groups of learners. 
Um, then the next layer that we're hitting is because we've got other tools that allow us to communicate visually now across the internet, all the chat tools and with uh, webcam cameras and so on, learners are upping the ante and saying, well, I also want to work with people in this way. So that, that layer of tools adds the next layer of communication and the next layer of personal interaction that I think is, is one of the, is a major step forward for us. So learners can not only express their ideas in text, but you can actually see each other and communicate directly in that way. Sarah, just um, a comment, if you could, on, on the other side of the equation, learners at work, and there are lots of them, learners at work, and they don't have time for lots of the nice things. They just need to get in, get the qualification, get out. And, and often there is no instructor. There's the person that helps you design the course as an SME who has another job. So could you comment on that environment? Uh, yes. There are all sorts of learners, and we all personally learn in different ways. Um, there's no question that if you, wa- if you want to learn a particular procedure or if you, if you want to learn about how to do a particular thing, it's often a personal thing for you. And so a personal learning process is okay. It may not be as effective as a, as a more robust and broader process, but it's still successful. We all learn individually constantly. Um, so... There is a significant place for online learning in that context. But if you want to raise the bar and think about the, the most successful context, you've got to think about the ideas that I think I've presented there. Um, you, but there, are, there, are, there is room for every aspect of that. Certainly, but all the early research in the 90s about why the bubble burst for e-learning, the major issue was... Learners thought they were learning in an isolated component and, and that's the research across distance learning worldwide forever. Enormous dropout rates because people couldn't get motivated or they found learning individually difficult. So, but there are, there are, I'm talking about what I think is, the, is what we should aspire to but we, sh- we shouldn't say or every other aspect mode of learning is not going to work. That's, that's inappropriate. So yes, that's, Dale, you've got a very good point. Yes, terrible, isn't it? So lonely. <laughs> um, well, uh, the, the question is, how do you get learners to interact with chat sessions? Um, okay. Yes, okay. There, there's quite... Um, uh, an anomaly there. The research is showing they want interaction. You give them interaction, they don't come. All right. And they don't come because they don't see that interaction as part of the learning process, specifically. They don't understand as what it's going to do for them. They don't see it as part of the learning process. So what, you ha- what we do is we try to design our courses so that that interaction has a specific purpose. Um, so, for example, um, we, we design it so the, in this week, here's an issue. We need you, this group, to discuss that um, and come up with a, a considered view, one paragraph, about where you think this 
concept is up to. And we need you to publish that for the class. And the next, the activity next week might be considering each of those publications. So one way to do it is to, in, to incorporate processes that are part, that are integral to the learning process. They're not circumstances that are separate. You st- I think personally you still need to allow learners to have a social interaction that they decide on. So you should have them being able to say, oh, I want to talk to this person personally or I want to talk to this group or I want to put up an idea from my whole group and chat away about it. In the early start part of any subject or any e-learning environment, I think, the social interaction is crucial to get them going and the chat space is great for that. But you're right, once, once they've done, been there and done that, unless you construct it as part of the learning process, either in terms of there's a requirement they collectively do something and put something up for the rest of the class or they collectively do something or they individually do something and they, it's part of their assessment, um, unless they're really committed and um, really um, focused students, they're not going to use it. First time. But you can, you can develop the culture. Uh, so, for example, in our master's program, we tend to notice in the early stages of that, the students get excited about the chat space and, um, and we found exactly the same as you did. That is, we were very lonely on those chat spaces. But if you construct the learning environment so it's an integral part, after a while they then see that as a really important learning tool because they've had the experience and they know how much it's helped them. So they take control of it as well often. Um, so you, I think it's, there's a lot of literature out there now about how to do that and good examples and so on. So um, that's the general approach we take. Good night, Barry. Um, one of the things I'm involved in the workplace, um, managing learning there, and, and on reflection, there seems to be a slightly some differences between both the educational settings and the workplace settings. In that, in the educational setting, the majority of the learning is form, formally designed and controlled. When in the workplace, actually, the majority of it is informal, with only some formal. Now, how do you link the informal and the formal learning so that it can become a part of the whole learning process that you can sort of manage? Uh, I, think, I think that's a good point in it and um, there, there are a couple of designs in our web environment that I think have attempted to do that. Um, that is, especially the problem-based ones where a big issue is set um, or an authentic task of some sort and the sources of information that the students use for that authentic task to try to resolve that problem and, and present some sort of outcome are partly in the environment but they could be anywhere. So uh, I think the designs, I think for that sort of learning you either need a problem-based learning approach or you, you need a, a learning community approach. So in other words, you set the, the context up but then you get the learners to bring the content with them and add it to your environment and share it and then come up with solutions. Um, I, think, I think it's not too different, uh, but it certainly needs a different design. I'm just wondering on the time frame, 
Yes. Um, uh, Sue, <laughs> are you going fast enough? <laughs> um, we, uh, you can all have it when it's available. Uh, we think we're going through another iteration if someone will give us some more money and we, uh, we're on the track of that. And then when we do get the money, it'll, but it, it'll be a simple tool. It really needs... Um, and you can play with it, but it's not something that's going to, that's going to move forward. It, it's a, a tool that needs to then be incorporated as part of a learning management system. Yes. Uh, no. Uh, no, um, we're looking at it, basing it on L, LMS, uh, IMSLD. Uh, it has to be because that's going to be the international standard. LAMS, LAMS, What's the terminology, Cheryl, they use? No, what, how do they say it fits the standards? No, we know it doesn't. But there's a term that keeps appearing all the time. Drawn from the standard or something like that. It doesn't fit the standard, but it's a, it's a really nice set of ideas in that it's drag and drop and visual design, which really makes it nice and simple. Well, I, I'd like, I really like the visual design, but I think they haven't got, they've done some things with the way in which they represent learning strategies that are much lower grain than we've gone to, and they, they are elements of our, the bigger design we're talking about. But I think, I think it's a pretty interesting tool, and it's a nice step on the way, I think. No, you can't, you can't ask Adrian. Um, where I work now, I've been uh, using the learning, the learning design model that supports tasks and resources. And because um, our students are mostly in full-time work, they're pretty cynical about the whole idea of just learning for its own sake. So I found that um, assessment was right up there with uh, those three other elements yeah. as, a, as a really critical motivator. This is, the, the assessment is what they're going to look at first. And if you can build assessment, if you can build the interaction that you want where the learning will take place into the assessment, then you'll get more success in getting them to participate. Otherwise, they just they won't learn just if it's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. No, that's a very important point, Adrian. Um, and I, I steer away from it because I'm assuming the activities have got appropriate, well-designed assessment in. And, of course, it's a different context for different types of learners. If you've got learners coming in that have to get a qualification for these reasons, um, they want to do it as quickly as they can and they want to have their certificate, they're, they're certainly committed to their learning, but it, they don't want to go anywhere beyond the last sentence. Well, um, your strategies, some of those strategies in that the set of learning designs won't work. And if you, if you go into there, there'll be explanations about the context they're used and why they've been successful in those contexts. You're right, and you've got to be very careful about how you translate them into different contexts. It's a good point. Okay, can I, can I just finish off on one point? Here's another big issue coming to us. This is my grandson, Riley. He's four. Riley has his own web pages and he um, can turn his dad's computer on. He, can, he can't write, but he can sign on. He can type his name uh, and he can surf the web as well as go to his own web pages. 
when he, he just shifted back to Wollongong from Melbourne and he rang me and said, we're coming back to Melbourne, Poppy, can you put my web pages on your computer at home? And I said, oh, I'm, oh how, so all right, I'll try. He said, no, don't try. I'll show you when I get there. <laughs> Riley can also, unfortunately, make bookings on my palm with me. But he's not real good on the time, AMPM. And he puts the alarm on. So for him, but I didn't show him how to do it. He watched me, he watches his dad, and he can just do it at four. Now, this, these are the people hitting our schools and then coming on to tertiary education and then uh, and vocational education. The technology is transparent to them. It has to be. You are already meeting some of them, but they're getting better and better and more of them are coming. We've got to, and this is the whole idea about the learning environments, the learners are going to change the learning environment. We've got to think about how, you're going to, how are we going to design for Riley when he gets there. Um, how are you going to design for all the kids like this, these new kids that are hitting our schools? So we're, we're, while we're going ahead and moving rapidly, We've got to move faster, I think, because um, the learners, are, new learners, keep coming all the time, and we've got to keep redesigning for them. Okay, thank you. Okay, would you all join me in thanking Barry? Now, of course, in the tradition of all good conferences, anybody who says the name Janison over three times gets a little yes. present. <laughs> And uh, Barry, because you're the first presenter and uh, a bit braver, they seem to have given you another one as well. So on behalf of Janison, thank you very much. Thank you very much.